again, good morning. I believe some people are on vacation. A bit smaller crowd this morning, and that's okay, it's summertime. We just completed a series on the Apostles' Creed, and for the remainder of the summer, we are going to examine a psalm each week uh, before beginning a series on James in the fall. We examined the Creed using Scripture, and we recited together every Sunday morning because there's great value in, in confessing our united core beliefs together, the fundamental truths of our Christian faith. Our psalm today also contains a confession, a, decor, a declaration, and uh, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But first, let's take a few minutes to examine what the psalms are, their history and their particular genre, and why they are part of the canon of Scripture. The entire collection of psalms is called praises in Hebrew. And in Greek, it has more of an instrumental connotation and means the plucking or twanging of instruments. So, a worship band, essentially. The collection of these psalms constituted Israel's ancient, God-breathed, God-inspired hymnal, which helped the Israelites set the tone for their worship and for their gatherings. So the genre of psalms is most closely associated with poetry, kind of like Lamentations or Song of Solomon. Evidence of the Holy Spirit inspiring these psalms is the fact that it is the most often quoted book in the New Testament. The Israelites memorized and sang these psalms when they gathered together to celebrate and to worship God at their feasts, at their festivals. Anytime that they gathered to worship God, much like many of us have many gospel-centered hymns and contemporary worship songs memorized as well. But the Psalms of the Bible were co-authored by the Holy Spirit and include a significant amount of cross-genre prophecy in them. It's pretty cool stuff. This book of the Bible, this collection of songs, has the unique distinction of possessing no less than seven known authors, plus a handful of anonymous ones that we just don't know about. And they range from Moses to David to possibly even Ezra and span Israel's history for about 900 years, which is pretty amazing. The truly amazing part is the consistency, the consistent theme running through all of the Psalms. And that theme is, how do we live a real, genuine life now, here in this real world, where there are two dimensions at work at all time. And we're going to be talking about these dimensions a lot today, so learn it now. These two dimensions are the horizontal, temporal dimension that we're in right now, our real life right now, which is defined by sin and the consequences of sin. This is our world right now. But then there's the vertical reality or as I like to call it, the ultimate reality, where God is still sovereign, God is still good, His promises are faithful, and He is constantly at work to carry out His will. Many psalms graphically acknowledge the pain and suffering of living in a sinful world. The brutal honesty with which the writers express their utter need and reliance on God is a theme that is just as vital and important to us today. Without denying the pain and the suffering of living in this sinful earthly dimension, the Psalms call us to remember God's promises. They call us to remember His sovereignty and His goodness. 
They call us to have joyful dependence on the person of Almighty God, regardless of circumstances, meaning, yes, let's acknowledge the difficult things in life. The Psalms do a lot of that. Let's acknowledge the hardship of living in a broken world with broken bodies, with broken relationships. But let's also be mindful of the vertical reality at work in and through us if we are in Christ Jesus, if we belong to God. And that reality supersedes all of this other pain and suffering and sin and points us towards our eternal security with God. So today, we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 91, which may or may not have been written by Moses. We're not 100% sure. It's one of the most memorized and quoted psalms because of the assurances and promises written therein. And what we will try to do this morning is do what the Israelites did, capture the spirit, the essence of true worship through this psalm. In this psalm, we take comfort knowing as we trust and abide in the Lord, he delivers us and abides in us. Let's read it. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, sorry, some of you are standing right now. You guys are well trained. Good job. Here at Timberline, we invite you to stand because we believe God's word comes with its full authority, and most of you can quote that line. Good job, Timberline. Proud of you guys. Let's do this again. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the error that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you for these, these songs, this poetry that, that speaks to our hearts and our longings and our hopes and our fears and our sin and ultimately point towards your salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of your word and we pray right now that you would allow it to speak into us. Father, I pray that you would remove all distractions from this room, the cares of the world, the things on our to-do list, Father. 
and that you would reveal to us truth about your son Jesus. Father, I pray that you would speak through me as poor of a vessel as I am. Father, your glory is the only objective that we have today. So we ask for your presence in this room as we, as we dissect this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to go ahead and break up this psalm into three stanzas, because it's a poem, right? And these stanzas follow a pronoun pattern to show you who is doing the primary action. In verses 1 and 2, we have the first stanza with a first-person declarative. I will say, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is the confession of the author, and it ought to be our confession as well. And, and it shows us who is doing the action in this part of the song. The second stanza is verses 3 through 13, the middle bulk of the psalm. And here the psalmist primarily uses the third person, person pronoun, he, to refer to God and all of his promises, providing the reasons for placing his trust in the Lord like we read about in the first stanza. Then we end with the final three verses for our third stanza, and here we go back to the first person statement. Only now, it is the Lord God Almighty who is speaking. The Lord himself, who is mirroring the declaration in the first stanza as though he is responding, as though he is affirming and sealing these promises with his guarantee. This structure, this confession at the beginning, the promises in the middle, the, the guarantee at the end from the Lord is, is just beautiful. And I can just imagine the Israelites gathering together and singing this psalm together with one voice. And it, that would have been amazing. We should do that here. You guys want to do that today? Jamie does. The rest of you are like, eh, let's practice first. So we start with the confession. The psalmist begins by saying, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What does it mean to dwell in the shelter of the Lord, though? What does it mean to abide in His shadow? Now, the words abide and dwell are synonymous under the context of your residence, where you make your abode, pointing us toward the idea of home. And the idea of home is a powerful theme that stretches through the Old Testament with God's promises to the Israelites as they leave Egypt, Egypt, promising them a home and a future. And this theme runs all the way through to the New Testament as well, culminating in our final home with God for all of eternity. So the question is, where do you make your home? We're going to take a little time-traveling adventure now, because that's fun. You guys like doing that, right? One yes. <laughs> Imagine for me, you are an Israelite, newly freed from slavery in Egypt. You've been promised a new home, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land whose hills are filled with gold and iron and copper, where prosperity and blessing await you. But first, you're going to spend 40 years walking through the desert. As terrible as this sounds, there are a few silver linings we need to point out. 
Regardless of where you are in the desert when you pitch your tent for the night, you are assured that the Lord's shelter, the tabernacle, is in the same camp. The shelter of the Most High is with you. Always. And as you wander through this desert, the Most High God is leading you with a pillar of cloud during the day, providing you with a shadowy respite from the sun. And in Exodus 13, it says, The pillar of cloud and fire did not depart from the people. The presence and the leading of the Lord is constant. This imagery and this language used in this first verse points us toward the idea of following God, making His presence our home and our dwelling space, wherever He may lead us. Instead of a tent, Ephesians 2.2 says, The Most High now dwells in us, for those of us who call upon the name of the Lord. So His presence is with us no matter where we place our tent, no matter where He leads us. This promise prompts the psalmist to declare to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. The psalmist trusts the Lord to lead him because of the shelter of the Most High, because in his shadow is the best place to be. It's the safest place to abide, even if it means he's leading you through a desert. So what does it mean to abide in the Lord? For the Israelites, it meant obeying the law and the sacrificial system. The Apostle John in his first epistle tells us quite plainly that we know God if we keep his commandments. He goes on to say in 1 John 2.6 that whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in a manner in which he walked, in which Christ walked. So abiding in the Lord means living in a manner consistent with the Lord. John then goes on to write about those who deny Jesus as the Son of God. He refers to them as antichrists. Small a, because there's many of them. It's not a title. It's anybody who, who rejects Jesus, denies Jesus as the Messiah. Then in 1 John 2.20, John writes, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. The Holy One, of course, means the Holy Spirit. So he's specifically talking to believers right now, those who are in the body of Christ. What is this knowledge? Well, it's the gospel. It's the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the only means of our salvations. John then goes on to say in verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. I write these these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Abiding, then, is obeying Jesus' commands, living in a manner that is consistent with how he lived, and it also means holding fast to this knowledge, to this belief that you confessed when you heard the gospel. John says, don't be deceived. Don't listen to those who deny Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And it's not just people. Sometimes circumstances can cause us to doubt. If any people had good cause to wonder if God knew what he was doing, it was the Israelites as they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. You might find yourself in a different kind of desert today. Perhaps you feel as though the the Lord doesn't really know how to lead your life. 
Maybe you think he's doing things the wrong way. Perhaps you've started to doubt his goodness. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the wickedness in this world, by the illness in yourself or a loved one, or by the inevitable chaos that comes from living in this sinful world. Perhaps you think he doesn't hear you anymore. Even if that's not you today, it might be you tomorrow. This second stanza was written to you, to us, to all of God's people, to give us great comfort and strength for those moments. For it's there we hear the promises. And if you're taking notes, I've I've divided these promises into three groups. And it's deliverance, protection, and response. We transition from the first stanza to the second stanza with the word for, meaning since or because. I will trust in the Lord because the Lord is faithful and he will do these things. We abide because he is faithful. Not the other way around, guys. He isn't faithful because we abide. No, he is faithful because that is his character. That is his person. He is the Lord and it is his nature to be faithful. How is he faithful? Let me show you, says the psalmist. Let me show you his character and his promises. And remember, this is kind of a good warning here. Remember, our human, in our human minds, we like to place all of God's promises in our immediate gratification. But the Lord Most High doesn't operate that way. He doesn't operate exclusively in our timeline. He is beyond time, and His ways are far above our ways. So as we look through these promises, keep in mind that these are eternal promises. Keep that in mind. So, the first promise. The first promise is deliverance. The Lord promises to deliver us from our enemies. Verse 3 says, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. It's interesting that the verbiage here points towards the fact that you're already stuck in the net. Meaning, this is a metaphor for sin. The trap set before us all the way back in the garden when Satan whispered lies and deceptions to Adam and Eve. Satan is the fowler. Satan is the deceiver, the accuser, our enemy, and his goal is to trick and turn people towards sin so they do not worship God. He hates it when the Lord is glorified, when the Lord is worshipped, which means if you are in Christ, he hates you. But we're stuck in sin, right? It's what we're born into. It's what defines this plane of existence that we are currently in. So how, how, do we, how are we going to be delivered from this trap? How do we escape sin? Well, it's the gospel. We escape sin in the person, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus paid for the penalty of our sin and created a way for us to have a relationship with God. This was the hope of all of the prophets of the Old Testament, of David as he wrote Psalms and all the other writers. They longed for the Messiah, for he is our deliverer and our deliverance. Through the deliverance the Lord promises, we can stand firm even when everyone around us falls prey to the enemy. Verse 7 says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. 
Not only does our Lord promise deliverance, He promises justice will fall upon the wicked. Do you know this? God saved you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Christ accomplished so much more than just your salvation on the cross. He defeated and judged sin, death, and Satan. If you abide in the Lord, one day with your own eyes, you will see the righteous hand of God judge wickedness. And that should bring us great comfort because it tells us that wickedness does not win. Wickedness has an expiration, uh, expiration date. And that is an amazing promise. Our Lord promises that evil will not win. But it can be hard to cling to this promise, right? When we're surrounded by sin, when we're surrounded by deceit, temptation, and all the other consequences of the fall. But remember the running theme through Psalms, which is how to live a real life right now in the real world where there are two realities at work. The horizontal or temporary one where Satan has temporary dominion of this world that we were in, where we experience the consequences of sin in our relationships, in our bodies, and in even nature. But then there's also the vertical, the ultimate reality that is always at work that says that God is true, God is faithful, and his promises are everlasting. So how do we apply this promise? How do we apply the promise of deliverance? Our text actually gives us the answer. This promise comes true only through the blood of Christ, for we are powerless to deliver ourselves out of the snare of sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will, quote, tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, as it says in verse 15. Well, who is the lion? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that we are to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, that means enemy, Our adversary, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And of course, Satan is also referred to as the serpent, the craftiest of all the creatures bent on deception, manipulation, and corruption. But the deliverance we've received through the cross means sin, death, and Satan have been defeated. And we, because of Christ, are more than conquerors, as it says in Romans 8. So how do we defeat sin? By being sober-minded, by being watchful, by recognizing the snares and the traps and the deceits and the lies, by treading on the head of the lion and the serpent, by remaining in the knowledge of your salvation when you heard the gospel, and by clinging to the promise that evil does not win in the end. The closer you abide to the Lord... This is super important. The closer you abide to his camp and his dwelling space, which is now in your heart, the closer you are to his heart, the easier it becomes to recognize and avoid these snares because the Holy Spirit illuminates them. Second promise. Protection. Verse 9 says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Here again we see the image, the theme of home, which brings us right back to the question, where do you call home? Where do you abide? 
Verse 9 promises, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, because you have set up your tent in his camp, in his presence, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Now, does this mean nothing bad will ever happen to you? Does this mean you or your loved ones will never get sick? If something bad does happen to you, or if someone you love does get sick, does it mean you're not abiding in his camp? Does it mean you set up your tent outside of his camp? Does it, does it mean you're doing something wrong? What are we actually being assured of in this verse? Once again, we are tempted to apply eternal promises to our temporary horizontal reality at the expense of trying to understand it in God's context. The fact is, as the great awakening evangelist George Whitfield said, we are immortal until our work is done. Think about that for a moment. We are immortal until our work is done. The moment you die is the moment you were supposed to die as ordained and written by the Most High God before he laid the foundations of the world, of the world with a word. Meaning there is nothing that we can do to prolong, delay, or avoid the moment of our death. Which means we can risk our lives for the sake of the gospel because we are not the author of our birth, let alone our death. So what exactly are we risking? But the flip side of this is also true. Death cannot take you until God Almighty says it's time. And until that moment, we have these amazing promises in verse 4. He says, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Because we have an enemy, because this foe hates God and therefore hates you if you worship God, and will use every means at His disposal to attack us, we must cling to these promises. How does the enemy attack us? By influencing wicked men to do his bidding. This is happening everywhere in the world right now, whether it's a political machine like we see in India, or if it's individuals who deny that Jesus is the Messiah, or who reject that Christ is the Son of God. Our Lord is actively thwarting the plans of the enemy and his minions when they go against his divine and ultimate will and plan. Which means, we have, which means we do not have to fear pestilence or illness or dangers or wars or, or anything. Verse 5 says, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that, waits, that wastes at noonday. You guys notice the completeness in those verses? Day, night, light, dark. When? All the time. We do not have to fear ever because we dwell in the camp of the Lord Almighty. Because if we abide in Him, we are going where He is leading us. Which means death is no longer something to be feared because as we've already stated, death was already defeated by that deliverance. And our Lord will, guarantee, will guard us from anything outside of His supreme will. And sometimes, sometimes we catch glimpses of this in the form of miracles. 
I think it would be really cool someday to just gather around and talk about these, these examples of, of things that occur that are beyond science, beyond medicine, beyond reason, that our brains cannot comprehend that we somehow avoided danger or an illness was cured. These happen all the time. And in those moments, in those glimpses, we see our divine God interceding on our behalf to put us back on his will, to protect us from the enemy because our time was not yet ready. Our God is faithful and will not allow harm to come upon us that does not serve his ultimate will. And even when, people, and even when God's people die at the hand of wicked people, these promises are eternal promises. He is the same Lord now as he will be for all of eternity, which means he is faithful and trustworthy now. He is our eternal refuge now if we belong to him, if we abide in him, if we've made our dwelling place next to his. There is no greater place to be. There's no more secure place to be than in the palm of our God's hand. Beneath, amen indeed, beneath His wings, behind His shield, because nothing can get at us. Know this and fear not. Which brings us to our third promise. This psalm promises a response from our God when we call upon Him. Why? We're in His camp. We can see His tent. He can hear us. We are in His presence. Verse 11 and 12 are really fascinating verses, and I'm super excited to preach these two verses. You guys are like, okay, cool. Let's read them. For He, the Lord, will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On His hand, on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If these verses sound familiar, it's because they are the verses Satan quotes to Jesus during his temptation recorded in Matthew chapter 4. Actually, in, in 4 verse 6. But remember, Satan is the deceiver, the father of lies, and we know this because he actually misquotes this verse. He leaves out the part to guard you in all your ways. So Jesus rebukes him, saying, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Why does Jesus respond this way, though? Will God not respond to the plight of his children when they ask for help? Doesn't he hear us? The answer is yes, of course he hears us. But how many of you, how many of us, have prayed for something, like getting a particular job, and you didn't get that job, So you tell yourself, God didn't answer that prayer. This subtle thought makes God out to be a wish-granting genie instead of the divine architect of all of history. Instead of the sovereign God who knows all the details of your life. God did answer that prayer. The answer was just no. And no is a fantastic answer when you are following, when you are abiding, when you are under the shadow of Almighty God. Because no tells you you're not supposed to do that. No says, don't go that way. No says, look for the different path. Look for my path. 
No is an excellent answer because it's leading us where he is. The Lord will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your, a- your, your ways when you are walking in his shadow, in his footsteps, and setting your tent within his camp. And when you're walking in his shadow, you won't be asking foolish things like his divine protection from when you base jump off the top of the temple, which, is what the, which was what the devil was asking Jesus to do. But surely, but surely... You could do this if you had enough faith, right? Clearly, you could ask for anything when you are abiding in the shelter of the Lord. And if, you didn't, and if you didn't get what you asked for, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith, right? This psalm promises a response, so I just need to ask louder and longer until I finally get the response I want, right? Of course not. Do you see how easy it is to follow this path of wrong thinking, though? Continue following it and you will arrive at the prosperity gospel, a deception from the father of lies that is leading people astray, telling them that they should expect God to give them anything and everything that they ask for, primarily physical health and material wealth. All from that subtle little thought of, God didn't answer that prayer. I must pray harder next time as opposed to acknowledging the fact that our Lord and Savior did respond, and it was no. And that's okay. Let's keep looking for the yes. That's why Jesus rebukes Satan, because this way of praying runs counter to how Jesus teaches us just two chapters later in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 10, Jesus teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Our Lord answers prayer, guys, and sometimes the answer is no because His will includes a plan that is better, that supersedes yours. We're just not given all the information because we're not God. Believe it or not, your comfort is not God's primary concern. Neither is your health. Neither is your safety. Disciples of Jesus Christ die of sickness and martyrdom every single day. His primary concern regarding his disciples, his people, is that we become conformed to the image of his Son. But when we fixate on death, when we fixate on danger, when we fixate on illness, we are forgetting the ultimate vertical reality at work. Remember, there are two realities. And we, as human beings, usually, about 99.9% of the time, can only see this one here. The one ruled by sin. The one ruled by the consequences of the fall. The one where our bodies are broken, our relationships are broken, and everything is falling apart. 99.9% of the time, that's all we can see. But in God's Word and through the Holy Spirit, we catch these glimpses of the ultimate reality happening, of these promises, of these assurances that our Lord is at work even in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the chaos. We are called to take shelter within His camp because He is our deliverance. And He holds our eternity protected 
in the palm of his hand, behind his shield, beneath his wings. Also take comfort that this, this horizontal reality, this, this temporal, the, te- the word temporal, I don't know, dictionary people here, that means temporary. This one goes away. This pain, this sinful world, the corruption, that's temporary. Any pain and suffering we experience now is our time in the desert, teaching us to trust the Lord, teaching us to remain in his camp. It's also conforming us into the will of Jesus Christ, the image of Jesus Christ, so that we will share in his sufferings in this broken world, so that we will share in his glory in the eternal world, in the eternal reality. When we abide in the Lord, we cling to his deliverance, his protection, and his response. Why? This part's so cool. Because the Lord Almighty guarantees it by his word. After all of our confessions and acknowledgement of his faithfulness and his promises, the Lord affirms it all to be true. In verse 14, the Lord replies, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Do you see it? If you are in Christ, the Lord God is talking to you right now because you hold fast to him in love meaning because you abide, because you cling, because you've taken shelter beneath his wing, he will deliver you. He will protect you. He will respond. Why? Because you know him. Because you belong to him. Because you trust him. Because you have faith in him. You're in his camp. The Lord Almighty confirms his faithfulness in this stanza because abiding is a two-way relationship. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, what can you do? Nothing. Our Lord pursues us like like the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew 18. He leaves the 99 to pursue the one. Our Lord is actively pursuing us, actively abiding in us. Do you know this? Do you know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord? Do you you know that nothing else satisfies? There is no satisfaction living outside of the camp because there's no protection. There's no deliverance. There's no response. Our Lord promises to be with us in trouble, meaning nothing is beyond his control, meaning he is right there with you in your trouble, promising to be with you, promising to comfort you. 
guaranteeing his very presence in that trouble, in that hurt, in that suffering. Our Lord will rescue you from the bonds of sin and death. He's done that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he will honor you and glorify you for all eternity as you share in the honor and glory of the Son. With long life, he will satisfy you and show you his salvation. This salvation is the only Son of God. Do you see? Do you see how all of these promises have already been fulfilled? Do you see now why we can declare to the Lord, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is how we are to worship. Do you know these truths? Have you declared your trust in the Lord? Have you declared your allegiance to Him? Have you placed your tent within His camp? And are you following Him when He gets up and He moves across the desert? Or are you staying where you were before and grumbling and complaining? Because when you do that, the Lord's already moved on. Abiding in Him means going where He leads, staying where He stays. But always and forever, the point is to be with Him. Do you know that His promises are faithful? And guys, read the Psalms. They are filled with just heart-wrenching cries out to God saying, Why have you abandoned me, God? Why do my enemies prosper? Why do my enemies pursue me and and kill all my men and, and, and try to kill me? Where are you, God? Those are in the Psalms. So let's not deny the pain of our our current reality. Let's not brush it aside. Let's not self-help, self-talk ourselves into, into just oblivious casualness about sin and suffering. No, let's grieve. Let's grieve our losses. Let's grieve our sin. Let's grieve our suffering. Let's rally around each other in those moments And then let's sing psalms like this where we lift each other up and remember and remind ourselves of the faithfulness of our God. That's why we sing these songs. That's why these psalms are here. Not to deny pain and suffering, but to give us that 0.1% glimpse into the eternal plan, the eternal reality at work at all times. Take comfort in knowing as we abide and trust in the Lord he delivers us and abides in us that's why we take communion that's why we remember this table every single Sunday because that deliverance came death sin and Satan have been defeated at the cross what, what other promise do you need? It was fulfilled. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
We thank you so much for your promises that are faithful and true because you are faithful and true. And Lord, we acknowledge, we acknowledge suffering and pain. You, you allow us to do that because you are our comforter and because Jesus suffered and experienced pain beyond anything that we could ever comprehend. So we don't have a God who doesn't understand. We have a God who knows and loves and comforts us. And we know that your word is faithful. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Remind us of it often, Father, as we open the word, as we sing together, as we listen to the radio and sing along to songs. Let your promises dwell richly in us because you are our refuge. You are our shelter. And we will abide with you. I'm going to invite the men to come forward as we